Cleaning up Miami's trash. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. There are tons of trash piling up in Biscayne Bay and other waterways, as well as many of the mangrove regions. We know this because Andrew Otazo has cleaned up more than 10 tons of it in the last few months. He'll share his passion for cleaning up after us. Also, every great filmmaker has to start their career somewhere. We'll meet one of the young people in the Miami for Social Change Youth Film Festival that's coming up. But first, we're going to look at Wilkin Brutus's conversation with Florida Secretary of State, Cord Bird. All of that coming up today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for joining us. Florida's new election police office is picking up steam. The Office of Election Crimes and Security was created to investigate election fraud and other crimes. Funding for the office kicked in just this month. The governor recently appointed its new leader, and he's no stranger to South Florida elections. But we'll get to that. Let's get a sense of elections in the state as a whole right now. WLRN's Wilkin Brutus spoke with Florida's Secretary of State, Cord Bird about how the office impacts all the upcoming elections. Wilkin, great to have you back. Louis, great to hear from you. So remind us briefly the role of the Secretary of State. Yeah, sure. So Florida's Secretary of State uh, essentially oversees the state's division of elections, uh, its election process. And the secretary of state is a constitutional officer that also oversees the division of corporations, which registers businesses. And the position also oversees the state's library and archives, and it promotes the state's cultural and historical resources. So there's a lot of uh, responsibilities under under that position. So Byrd was appointed by Governor DeSantis earlier this year. What do we know about the relationship prior to the appointment between these two? Yeah, so Bird is an attorney who sided with DeSantis over disputes regarding the state's congressional maps that tend to favor Republicans, maps that significantly uh, reduce the power of black voters in the northern part of the state. Bird also helped sponsor uh, some of the high profile proposals from from DeSantis and the Republican legislature, such as the, uh, the 2019 bill to uh, revolving sanctuary city policies and the HB1, the anti-riots bill that's currently going through the courts. So there is a close relationship there. So now he's in charge of creating this new Office of Election Crimes and Security. And here's what he told you about why that office is even necessary. We want to ensure that there are elections are fair, transparent and legitimate. We have election laws on the books and nothing undermines um, any law more than a law that's not enforced. And so some of these things have been going on uh, within the Secretary of State's office, but because elections are a complex mix of federal and state law, the thought of the legislature and the governor is to have a dedicated unit uh, that investigates and where necessary makes referrals to state's attorneys or the statewide prosecutor uh, so that voters can have confidence that the voting laws are being enforced and that when they cast a ballot, they know that it's going to be counted fairly and accurately. All right. So when this was going through the legislature, there was a lot of controversy. Wilkin, what was the what was some of the pushback? You know, Lewis, 
many opponents, Democrats, for example, have said that the Office of Election Crimes and Security is essentially a solution in search of a problem and that voter fraud is so rare that it doesn't justify the kind of resources this office is receiving and, and that they cited the governor's admission that the state's 2020 election was secure. And just to put into perspective, the Florida Department of State said that it received 262 complaints of fraud in 2020, of which it referred 75 to prosecutors. Now, that's out of more than 11 million uh, Floridians who voted in 2020 election. So, you know, Secretary Byrd said it's just additional security in the face of what he says, big tech uh, censorship and cybersecurity threats, and that the thought of the legislature and the governor is to have a dedicated unit that investigates and makes referrals to the state attorneys. And, and you, you kind of touched on it there, but how is it going to work with other law enforcement? Sure. So, so Bird said that the new election crimes and security office has about 15 positions and the new election cop, Pete Antonacci, will work with Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Um, Bird says if an election crime occurs within an individual county, the crime referral will be made to the local state attorney. And if it's a multi-county, a statewide prosecutor under the auspices of the attorney general, general could step in. And, and that, you know, most of the referrals would come from the supervisor of election. Uh, Bird also said that if crime referrals such as, you know, uh, double voter referral are not legitimate, then the office will discard them. And so Bird also responded to, you know, allegations from opponents calling this office a secret police force. And he said it wasn't that it's a unit to investigate unwarranted allegations and throw out unwarranted ones. So look, everybody has said it. Republicans and Democrats have said it, that the election in 2020 was smooth and was successful and everybody was happy with it. So what did Bird say about, you know, again, why they needed to have this? Right. And that's a broad consensus. And I certainly brought that up. Byrd also touted Florida's election process uh, as being smooth, but said that this new election crimes and security office is a matter of additional security. Uh, Florida gave county supervisor of elections more time to count vote by mail ballots so that vote counts could be uh, released quickly before Election Day, unlike other states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan that saw long delays in the 2020 election. So we definitely stand out. Now, despite Florida's smooth election process, Secretary Byrd cited irregularities uh, using the Wisconsin Supreme Court decision as, as an example. That court's conservative majority recently ruled that uh, uh, ruled to stop most Dropbox uh, returning absentee ballots. A vote can't have someone else return their absentee ballot uh, on their behalf. But that Republicans in, in, in Wisconsin have tried to limit voting access in their cities. And so it's definitely a different uh, process as compared to Florida. So in the past, uh, Mr. Byrd has refused to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president. Here's what he told you. We could go into the history of, we could go back to 2000. It is not uncommon for one side or the other to take issue with the results of an election. But fortunately, in our Constitution, we have a, a way to verify that, and that is through the Electoral College. That is through the state certifying their election. That is what happened. Congress certified President Biden as the president, and I accept him as the president. All right. Well, can, what struck you from that part of the conversation? Yeah, what struck me is that, you know, in the past, Secretary Byrd, who was a state rep, 
cited irregularities in the 2020 presidential election, despite no evidence accepted by courts of what he calls irregularities big enough to sow doubt in the nation's judicial system and elections process. But in this particular conversation, Secretary Byrd said he didn't mind taking issue with the results of President Joe Biden's election, but that since Congress certified President Biden as the president, Secretary Byrd actually accepts Joe Biden as the president. I'm talking with WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter Wilkin Brutus. We're talking about his recent conversation with Secretary of State Republican Cord Byrd. You can find more of this reporting and that conversation on the website, WLRN.org. So, Wilkin, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the higher profile cases of voter fraud that have been and have been, you know, found and, and made headlines have been linked to Republicans. Is there any chance, or what did he say about this office being partisan? Who would be the checks and balances here? Sure. You know, he presented no no pushback against this fact. Uh, for, for example, a Miami Herald investigation showed that the Florida Republicans changed the party registration of more than 100 voters without their consent. And, you know, I asked Secretary Byrd if this new elections crime office will be partisan. And he answered, quite frankly, no that they would investigate any crimes that are sent to the office, regardless of party affiliations. Um, And in terms of checks and balances, Lewis, well, I'm not quite sure what that would look like other than police agencies who work with the office accurately reporting on the election crimes and the public paying attention to how alleged crimes are being investigated. It's a new office, so I guess we're going to find out who's policing the police. Um, He tapped... Pete Antonacci to lead this elections police office. And again, someone we know well here in South Florida. What do we know, though, about Pete Antonacci's relationship with Court Byrd? Sure. Byrd didn't get into details about his relationship with uh, Pete Antonacci. And uh, aside from saying Antonacci has a vast experience with elections, you know, Antonacci served as supervisor of elections in Broward County and is broadly regarded as, you know, doing a a good job in that position. And Antonacci throughout the years has been the sort of go-to fix guy for Republicans. And so Secretary Byrd said in that role, among other duties, Antonacci will put the cases together from referrals to the prosecutors if necessary. And so he essentially stayed focused on what uh, Antonacci's duties are instead of their personal relationship. So before this, uh, Byrd was serving as a state representative, and he's he's behind some controversial legislation, one of them being the so-called anti-riot law, which came in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in 2020, and of course the nationwide protests that followed. Briefly, remind us of how the controversy behind that law. Yeah, sure. After nationwide protests on racial justice following the 2020 death of George Floyd, Governor DeSantis championed a controversial 2020 measure, HB1, or what many call the anti-riots bill, that would increase penalties if protests turned violent. And Many black Democrats and civil groups fought against the bill, saying it violated civil rights, especially in regards to uh, civil disobedience. The the law faced hurdles in court, though. Where is it right now? Now, uh, several civil rights groups sued over HB1, arguing, you know, it violates the, you know, the First Amendment. Uh, and in March, Governor DeSantis asked the 11th Circuit to reinstate the bill to overturn the order that blocks it. A panel of judges questioned 
the vagueness of HB1 and had trouble understanding how the new law defines peaceful protest and violent protest or how the law differs from uh, the Supreme Court's uh, Florida's of Florida's common law definition. So, so far, there's no signal as to when the judges will issue another ruling. What else did you take away from your conversation with the secretary of state? I'd say, Lewis, the conversation uh, centered on the rule of law itself, not just the ins and outs of the office. Secretary Byrd said he will commit to certifying the election of a Democrat for governor if the Democrat receives more legal votes by the deadline to certify that election. And I wanted to make sure I asked him that question and he answered that quite frankly and directly and that he believes it's important for a state elections office or or official to recognize the rule of law and the role of the judicial system. And so, you know, he said that there are no issues in this year's elections. And so uh, that was quite assuring. It was a fascinating conversation because it did air last week week, uh, on the South Florida Roundup. And again, if you want to hear more about that conversation, excuse me, go to WLRN.org. Wilkin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Lewis. Again, WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter, Wilkin Brutus. Well, still to come, you'd be surprised at the things that end up in Biscayne Bay. And we're going to meet the guy who's been cleaning it up. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. There is a lot of trash washing up in Biscayne Bay and other waters around South Florida. And it's not just the amounts of trash, but the sort of things that are ending up in the water in the mangroves. Things like car parts of cars, parts of boats, all sorts of electronics, clothes. I mean, the list goes on and on. Andrew Atazo started cleaning up that trash five years ago. Since then, he's probably cleared tons. In just the last few months, he's, he's gotten 10 tons. Andrew's an environmentalist and a public relations professional, and he joins us now. Andrew, great to have you back on the show. Luis, it's a pleasure to be back on. Remind us again why you do this, because you're not getting paid. You're not part of an organization <laughs> doing it. You're just a regular average citizen Walking out there, picking up our trash. Why are you doing it? Right, it's it's for all that you know non-existent mangrove trash I get. Um, I guess I do it because I'm just I, I feel like a need to tackle systemic excuse me systemic problems that I feel like are not being addressed. Um, and specifically because I love this environment so much, I've known it basically my entire adult life and a significant amount of my childhood. And it really pained me to see it so just run down and so polluted for so long that uh, eventually I just decided to do what I can locally. Um, And again, I'm not the only one doing this. I'm part of a much larger movement here in South Florida that is trying to address the marine pollution problem that we have, um, at least when it washes up on our shores. Tell me about the first time you decided to go out. Like, where did you go and what did you expect? Um, Well, I knew exactly what to expect because I'd been out there many, many times since I was essentially 13 years old. But the first time I went out, um, I just decided to start methodically picking up Bearcut Preserve, which is on the northern end of Key Biscayne, 
Uh, it's an incredible uh, natural environment uh, in Crenon Park. And, you know, just uh, I, I, I had made a commitment to myself that I was going to do this for as long as possible. There was no time scale that I was uh, thinking of, um, of just pursuing. And, you know, this is a commitment I've made basically for the rest of my life. Do you remember how much trash you picked up that day? The first time? It was not a lot, honestly. Um, it was probably like 30, 40 pounds. And to put that in perspective, like my single day record to date is 1,050 pounds. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was that was a rough day. <laughs> wow. All right, so tell us about some of the – like all the different places that you go to pick up trash. Sure. So like I said, I a lot of my efforts have focused on Barracuda Preserve. But I've also done the Spoil Islands off uh, Crandon Park Marina, West Point Mangrove Preserve, the historic Virginia Key Beach Park, and also North Point, also on Virginia Key. Now, for the most part, you've been doing this alone. I mean, since you started, you do have other friends. We'll talk about some of the volunteers that you have now, but like a lot of it has just been you, right? Uh, it's mostly me, but I do collaborate with a lot of excellent organizations and individuals from across South Florida, everything from the Frost Museum of Science to the Girl Scouts, Miami Freedom Projects, local middle and high schools. But yeah, usually it's it's just me or maybe me and a friend. Um, Nick Partigas or Eddie Monroe are great friends who for some reason keep going out and doing this terrible work with me. Um, but yeah, that's it's, it's usually just me. And, and I gotta tell you, I mean, like anybody who should, should follow you on Instagram or your social media, because you post these pictures and these videos of you out there, sometimes swimming around in the in you know in the waters, collecting stuff that's down at the bottom, walking through mm-hmm. these. Man- By the way, anybody who's tried to walk through the mangroves, that in of itself is a pain. It's very difficult. But he- <laughs> here you are slogging through, picking up all this stuff. Um, for you, it's important to show that too. Y- you can't just tell people you're picking up trash. You take these incredible pictures to show us all the trash that we're leaving out there. There's, and, that, and that's a very important. That's really helpful. Yes. The, the entire point of what I do is to bring visibility to a problem that is has been invisible for decades, essentially, because people don't tend to go into the mangroves for very good reason. It's very difficult, and they tend to be protected, and you, know, you shouldn't have masses of people walking through there. But yes, so I have been um, writing down and and calculating my daily tonnage every single day, as well as documenting uh, my efforts so that I can show people, you know, this this massive marine trash problem that we have here in South Florida. But more than that, once I have their attention, then I can begin to educate them on what can be done at a policymaker level to begin to address it and what individuals can do in their own lives to move that forward. How do you keep from getting depressed you know, you stay, oh. <laughs> you stay, I mean, you say you're, you're going to do this as long as you have to, but I mean, the things you see. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess it's just all perspective, right? Because it is a Sisyphean task. Um, I've cleaned the same coastline dozens and dozens of times because there, every high tide brings more trash inevitably. Every storm, every hurricane brings a lot more trash, but you know, I see it from the perspective of, you know, this one bottle cap or this one straw or this car battery, whatever that I find out there could do damage to 
a local pelican or a sea turtle or a dolphin or a crab or literally any living animal that depends on the mangroves. So for me, it's worth it because, you know, there must be some little animal running around or swimming around out there because of my work than there otherwise would have been. And that makes me more than happy enough to continue my work. Also, just the fact that, you know, as the trash piles up, it'll get to the point where it makes our water just, you know, uh, unable for us to swim in or to enjoy. It'll it'll become ugly. Um, How did trash collection change during the pandemic for you? So uh, everything that humanity produces and uses winds up in the mangroves. Um, The I would say that the amount of trash that I picked up didn't change. Of course, I find different you know, materials out there. I'd find masks and, uh, you know, all, you know, basically the paraphernalia that was used around the pandemic. Uh, but really that was the only significant change that I saw. Also, it was a great opportunity for me to get outside of my apartment because I wasn't going to come in contact with anybody out of the mangoes. But did you see like during the pandemic, because we were stuck inside, was there less trash or the trash changed? No, no, no. It's I mean, it's the same amount. Um, that that doesn't change. the The majority of the trash comes from our streets, and you know, essentially, it's just um, our, our 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 waste treatment systems here in South Florida. So you know, any any trash that falls along the street or is illegally dumped, which happens so very often all across South Florida, when it rains, that trash will go into the gutters, and then that goes directly into the outflows, uh, which is just basically where the water from the sewer system goes directly. Well, it's not really the sewer system, but the gutter system goes directly into the bay without any filtration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that just then goes, you know, then that eventually winds up in the mangroves. So, no, there wasn't really any significant or noticeable drop in the amount of trash out there. All right, that's sad to hear as well. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, again, talking with Andrew Atazo, Miami resident, Again, spent the last five years or so. He's been cleaning up trash out in, in, in the Biscayne area. He's gone through Biscayne Bay, and he's gone through a number of mangrove regions, as he mentioned, uh, cleaning up all kinds of trash. And I, I believe in a matter of just a few months, he picked up 10 tons. Now, over the years, oh. it's, it's got to be <laughs> Yeah, even over more. five years. Over right, right. Five, okay, well, over, over the five yes. years? Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. That's the totality up. of trash that I've picked that's, up is, is 20,050 that is a lot of trash by the way learn more about him and his work you can follow him on his social media we posted it on our social media wlr and sundown all right thank you for clearing that up did you ever by the way when you think about 10 tons or more like because i know you're you're picking it up and you're dumping it or recycling it but you ever stop to think what 10 tons looks like if you were put it all in one big pile all the time all the time (laughs) It would be a lot of trash. And I, I, I feel it on a visceral level because the vast majority of that 10 tons has been on my shoulders as I've carried it to the drop-off point. So I very much know how large and how much that weighs. That's unreal. I'm going to get to, by the way, because you, you also you made a name for yourself during the Miami Marathon carrying trash around. But I'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to, always wanted to ask you this. And I've seen a lot, a lot of your video. I'm following you all the time. But what is the strangest thing that you ever pulled oh, out yeah. of the water or mangroves? People love asking me that question. But it's picture the strangest thing humanity creates. And I found it. So everything from 
quinceanera dress to a whoa. VR headset. Whoa, 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 whoa. You found a quinceanera dress? The whole dress? That's right. The whole dress. Oh, my The gosh. whole dress. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how that ended up out there. It was dumped. It was uh-huh. illegally dumped. Oh, wow. um, so you have two different sources, right? You have the the trash that washes in with the tides, and you have people going out there and just dropping their stuff because they don't want to dispose of it. Um, you said VR so, yeah. VR headset too. That's right, a VR headset. But also, you know, I found toothpaste from Cuba. I constantly find vinegar bottles, which is used as a condiment in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, I found a, what was really awesome was that I found a message in a bottle that came from the West coast of Florida that had traveled hundreds of miles. That was pretty amazing. Wow. Um, and I got in contact with the, with the girls that sent it. That was really cool. Yeah. What did they say? Uh, what, was, what was the message? Oh, it was just like, oh, we're two girls living in, I believe it was uh port Charlotte. Okay. And, you know, we're just basically putting a message in the bottle. And if you receive <laughs> this, please send it back out. And then the crazy thing was that there were two other individuals um, farther down along the coast that had also received the bottle and put their own messages in there. So I got it, put a new message in there and, threw, you know, put it back in the ocean. And who knows where that is. I mean, it's, it's a cool story, but at the same time, you're littering. We're littering. That's the ironic part about all this. It was a glass bottle. No, it was I a know. glass bottle. I, I didn't know. feel bad about it. Okay. All right. Um, you know, I mean, again, it, it, you talked about dumping, and this this is the real frustrating thing because there are plenty of signs everywhere. No dumping. Have mm-hmm. you ever caught anybody doing it? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Yes, absolutely. And I call Florida Fish and Wildlife or the county on them so fast. You, they, I literally have them like saved in my phone ready to go uh, when I see that. And I mean, you've never confronted anybody though yourself, right? I've kicked people out of areas that they weren't supposed to be in. I told them to leave. Um, but, you know, it, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a you know, a county employee. So I can't enforce that anyway. I just tell them like, you're not supposed to be here. Please leave. Or if I see them doing something illegal, like uh, fishing in an area that they shouldn't be or laying crab traps or something like that, then I tell them you can't be doing that. And well, I'm in camo and I have, you know, (laughs) I look official. So they leave. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? How do you handle, um, I'd imagine you'd run into things that could be toxic. How do you how oh, do you yeah. ha- how do you handle that and how do you dispose of it? Um, okay, so you have you have two different kinds of toxic materials that I find out there. There's chemical and there's biological. So chemical is just anything from solvents um, to uh, motor oil to cleaning supplies to a fire extinguisher. It's just a bunch of terrible chemicals that I find out there. I carefully dispose of it in you know my industrial trash bags. I have gloves on. Um, if it looks too dangerous, I don't touch it um, because, you know, I want to be able to keep doing out, going out there without harming myself um, as much as possible. Then there's the biological. Um, so everything from, oh, man, I've picked up so many used diapers in my time. It's it's terrible um, to, you know, you find different carcasses, different animals. And then there's the uh, proverbial pee bottle which um, every now and then when uh, you're going through the trash or you, I mean me, when I'm going through the trash and I open up a bottle, well, somebody peed in it and occasionally those things explode. So yeah, you can imagine what happens. Mm. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, the, um, 
I wonder too, like when you when you call the 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 state, uh, when you call officials, usually how good are they about responding? They're pretty good. Okay. Um, the state and the county is pretty good. They usually, you know, send a boat out there. Again, it depends on the on what's going on. Like if it's Labor Day weekend and insanity is going across all of our waterways, then they might take longer. But you know, they'll usually be out there within half an hour. I've yeah, within about half an hour, which is pretty good. So I remember the first time I I met you. Uh, it was because of the Miami Marathon. And I don't know if this was the first or second time you had done it, but you basically you were you were walking the marathon um, mm-hmm. and you were carrying 30, 40 pounds of some of this trash that you had collected out there in the bay. Uh, and that that be, you were the I don't know. What was your nickname? They called you the, you know, the plastic man or the trash man. Who knows? I don't you, even know. They, they call me some somebody called me the garbage marathoner, which is a bit pejorative. But, you know, I couldn't. You know, I had nothing to do with that brandy. <laughs> so you, you, you're carrying around this pack of, of trash and obviously to bring attention to the issue of all of this trash that was ending up in our very pristine water that we, we care about. We say we care about. Um, you still doing that or are, are you? Uh, so, yeah, in 2019, I carried 35 pounds of mangrove trash on my back throughout the marathon. And then in 2020, well, first of all, that was horrible. That was terrible. I mean, that was the most pain I've ever been in that did not involve like a broken bone. Um, it took me nine hours and 50 minutes to finish the marathon. Um, and the whole point was to bring, again, bring visibility, bring this problem literally out of the mangroves and show it to as many Miamians as possible, which, you know, Miami Marathon's a great venue. And Frank Ruiz, um, who's the founder and runs it, he's been an incredible champion of mine. Um, so we did that one year and then the next year I decided like, well, you know, that was awful. So let me bring more people in to make it less terrible. And we pulled a 135 pound trash cart that was designed to look like a fish. Um, it was designed by, uh, Danny Alonzo, uh, who's a fantastic architect and designer here in South Florida. And we pulled that the length of the marathon. And in combination, those two events, we raised $35,000, excuse me, $30,000, to, that we donated to uh, Miami Waterkeeper, which you're familiar with, and yeah. they do great work protecting our our coastal ecosystems. Um, so I didn't do anything in 2021 uh, for obvious reasons, uh, and or in 2022, I'm going to be doing something, you know, some other big events or some other activation to bring more visibility to this problem. I'm not quite sure what. I just know that I'm not going to be hauling personally any more trash bags across the marathon that was just too <laughs> terrible 35 pounds over 26 miles ouch yeah uh, yeah you, you like i said though all the attention you've gotten everything you've done you know a lot of people have responded to you um and so now i mean you go out and and you said you work with other organizations as well you go out mm-hmm. with with i've seen these photos you and these large groups of people um, tell me a little bit about what it's like when, when these folks come out with you and the experience, like what the experience does for them. What do they tell you afterwards? Yeah, it's a very eye-opening experience generally. Um, I especially love taking middle and high school students out there um, because it's a brand new world for them. And a lot of kids in South Florida just don't have access to you know, the beach, much less the mangroves. But the first thing that they usually tell me is that they had no idea how much trash is out there. These areas sometimes look like literal landfills. 
And that is usually the most striking aspect. The next thing that, you know, they then react to is how much life and beauty there is out there. There are crabs running around, there are birds everywhere. You see fish swimming through the mangroves and that really strikes them. Um, and once they get over that initial, uh, I guess, trepidation of entering the mangroves, of entering this new environment they've never been in, they love it. They will like run around chasing after crabs and just have a great time. And, you know, like, I mean, we talked about some of the stranger things that you picked up out there, but it's not just that. Sometimes you find really big items. I mean, you found car parts. Yes, yes, yes. The largest single item I found was a 200 pound dinghy um, that had been floating around the ocean for God knows how long. That was a slog to get out. Um, But I found the weirdest stuff. Like there was this 300 pound block of latex just just a big cube of latex that I found in the middle of the mangroves that luckily floated so I could float it out there but then I had to like turn it like side over side to get it back up the beach um you know there's the side of a container ship from Louisiana that I found as well that had been floating around for 10 years um yeah they're massive like there's furniture there's the other day, I oh, I've picked up four different mattresses and sofas and <laughs> oh yeah, God. you name it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and there was 300 pounds of carpet somehow wound up in the mangroves. So that was another interesting experience. Oh, my gosh. By the way, like who's – you gather all this stuff. You Like you said, you have these big the, – the big industrial bags. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you take it after that or who's taking so, it? Depending on what area I'm working on, so whether I am working in City of Miami, um, uh, City of Miami Park, like North Point, or uh, in Crandon Park, which is county-owned, or I'm working around the village of Biscayne, I will coordinate with local officials, um, so either in the city, the county, or the village, and I will set a pickup point where I will drop all my stuff, and then they, those officials will then come by and, 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 and pick it up and disposable. You know, I, I know I asked you at the beginning, like, how do you stay from getting depressed at all the stuff that you've seen? And, and I mean, again, all this, by the way, is it true too? You picked up like enough car parts to build your own car by now. Basically. So I've <laughs> batteries, doors, bumpers, tires, um, you know, rims, yeah, an axle once. It's crazy. I'm only laughing because I don't want to cry. That's why. Exactly. Um, right. But tell me what what do you what have you learned about human behavior and what, you know, how we could be better? Um, I mean, I don't think it's really changed my perspective on humanity or human behavior. We're all in a bell-shaped curve. There are people on either ends that are terrible and they you know, or there's people on one end that's terrible. There's people on another end that's, you know, saintly. And most people are just in the middle. Um, and, you know, it's not really, this is, uh, this is a systemic problem that we have, right? This is a systems problem. Um, we have this issue because the, the waste disposal measures that we take in South Florida are not adequate to protecting our local environments along the coast. And so, yes, individuals feel personal guilt and they can try to implement changes within their lives using less plastic, um, you know, taking a canvas bag to the grocery store, things like that. And that's great. That's that's good. Um, but really, none of this will change unless we get our policymakers to change it. And that entails calling and emailing and and just annoying your elected officials until they start addressing this at its source. 
which is manufacturers and distributors of plastic products, as well as the systems that we have in place here in South Florida to protect our waterways. So like, I guess a roundabout way of answering your question is that I don't feel any worse or any better about humanity because I picked their trash up in the mangroves. It's just, we need to fix this so that we institute something that can mitigate the worst actors out there. You know, Andrew, I, I, I agree with you completely. All I could say is this, thank you for what you do. I know there are other people out there. It's not just you, but thank you and all the people who are out there doing that because if not, uh, it would be a real mess out there. Andrew, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Luis, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Andrew Atazo, again, Miami resident. Uh, he said he, he cleared it up for us. Over 10 tons of trash and all the time that he has spent out there. Again, follow him on social media. Uh, and you can see all the work that he's doing, the incredible work that he does. It's on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, we're going to meet one of the young filmmakers in the upcoming Miami for Social Change Youth Film Festival. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. The people who will make tomorrow's blockbuster movies have to start somewhere, and many already are getting started, honing their skills and trying out new things on the big screen. The annual Miami for Social Change Youth Film Festival is happening later this week to showcase some of the young rising filmmakers here in South Florida. Joining me now is Henry Volmar, a freshman at Miami-Dade College. His film is one of 70 being screened at the festival. Henry, it is a pleasure. Welcome to the program. Hi, good afternoon, actually. <laughs> Great to have you here. So let me uh, let me start with this. Your films are an Urgent Inc. production, that's the name of the company, for those not in the know. What does that mean? I don't understand. You're, you're an apprentice working at Urgent, right? Yes, Urgent Inc. is a nonprofit organization. It is an internship. And honestly, they, their main goal is to inspire the youth to empower their communities through media arts, whether it's film, graphic design, or entrepreneurship. Gotcha. And I have been with a part of Urgent Inc. for three years now. You do have, um, you got a film coming up in this film festival. There was another one you made, uh, a short that was direct uh, called Superhero that you directed. Uh, it's, it's a nine-minute long film, and it's about a superhero who's kind of having a rough time lately. What's what's going on with him? Tell me. Yes, so our superhero, I, I don't want to spoil the name because, honestly, the name is a little bit something with him. But, yes, he is a superhero that has lost his spark. He has gone through so much, and he feels like he is over with it. But throughout his whole journey, he finally finds why he started in the first place. And our basic film is, well, our film is basically to say that don't give up, even if you feel like everything is against you. You know, I, I got that sense watching it. Also, I got the sense, I thought it was really an interesting idea, like that we expect so much from our superheroes, but we forget that um, even if they are superheroes that, uh, you know, they also have to deal with mental health issues. And that kind of came through for me. I mean, I don't know. Is that something you wanted to kind of get across? Yes, we did. We wanted to show that, hey, this is like, even if you are a superhero, you are just someone, you still have feelings 
and you still have problems going into your life. And even if you try to help other people, that's an even bigger uh, block that you are putting on yourself. Do you think that that's coming across in superhero movies these days? Like, because there's so many, but I, 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 I'm starting to see that more and more often. I don't know. Do you see that? Honestly, I have seen the boys and that is a very good representation with yeah. different sorts of mental health, especially with uh, this one character where he said he is honestly off the rails inside his head because he has a very big like self ego and you can genuinely see himself just being crazy. So, yeah, I do see it that now they're implementing more of the mental health awareness in different superhero movies. Yeah. that And again, The Boys, that's a series that plays on, on Prime Video. Um, at, you know, the, the other thing, too, about uh, your the, that movie, the superhero, is at one point the character breaks that fourth wall, you know, and talks to talks to me. And I'm wondering for you, is that, you know, that technique, why is it important for you to, to, to use that technique? It was important to have, it was mainly a source of way to actually engage the audience into the film as if it's, oh, I'm actually a part of this. So what, what, what was going to happen next? So it was strategically placed to keep people in their toes on what was happening. Mm. Again, I'm talking with Henry Volmar. He's a student at Miami-Dade College, and he's. we were talking about one of his films that he directed, a short film. It's called Superhero, and he's got another film, too, that's going to be featured at the annual Miami for, for Social Change Youth Film Festival. That's happening the 21st through the 22nd uh, later this week. It's at the Julius Littman Theater in North Miami Beach, and they've got 70 short films that'll be screened, all of which are open to the public. You can find out more, by the way, on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Okay, so Henry, the film for that's going to be featured in this uh, upcoming festival, it's called Malcolm's Desk. And I also get the sense, too, that it tackles this issue of some, some you know, the mental health aspect of just trying to deal with the stresses of life. But you tell me, where did the idea come from? Honestly, the idea came mainly because everyone seems like working is uh, kind of a part of their life. And then, but I don't see a lot of people actually making a film about being overworked. And that's that's what happened with, with me and my crew. And we were like, why don't we make a short film about someone who's overworking and that's actually longing for their past life where they had a lot of freedom and yeah that's mainly what happened you know what I, I was curious about this this is something i've been reading a lot about with your generation it's not just the overworking but there's this thing in within your generation that i hear a lot is the hustle right it's that hustle mm -hmm. life and then you got to be working all the time and you got to have side hustles and you know if not you're not going to be successful is that do you feel like that's become a, a big problem within your generation? Honestly, yeah, this is because people uh, around my age, now that I know, they do not like to spend uh, a lot of free time to themselves. They mainly do it for their futures. They're mainly making it for that they don't have to work 
in a later state of their life. That's what the hustle culture now is getting even bigger because people don't really want to be broke and actually continue working. They want to be free for like the rest of their life. And side hustles, oof, that has been a little struggle, but honestly, it is something that has been a problem, especially when if they don't try to take care of themselves, they're going to be in a worse state than they are now. That's yeah. from my personal experience. Yeah, no, no, and I've read, I've read that a lot of people your age are having physical problems, even going to, to hospitals, uh, because, well, you're, work, you're overworking and it, mm-hmm. your, your bodies are breaking down. Tell me about the process of filming for, for this film. Like, you know, what, what, what did you have to use in making this movie, the equipment? Honestly, we used a lot of cannons. We used, well, the Canon TAIs, we used stabilizers, we used different lights. And, well, the basics of we, what we had. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was basically it. But if you want me to go into, like, the actual team part where we had to display this off, I can. Well, I know, I want to... I wanted to get a sense of like the process for you as you're putting it together. How how many days did it take for you to film? For superhero? No, no, no. For, no, for Malcolm's death. Oh, Malcolm's death. Yes. That actually took a week and a half. Okay. And well, and how many people are in the crew? There was about uh, 8 8 to 10 of us actually. That is including the uh the actors. No, I see. I mean, from superhero to Malcolm's desk, tell me what you've learned about the movie making business and, you know, like what what lessons you're taking with you as you get ready for whatever that next project is. Something I have definitely learned, it was communication is key, especially when you want something done that, you know, your team can actually put it off, pull it off. You just need to let them know how you want it to be pulled off. Uh, communication is very, very necessary, especially when uh, uh, your actors, when you want them to act a certain way, you can't tell them really, hey, this is how I want you to do, like act angry. No, you actually have to sit with them and be like, okay, this is how the character feels. I need you to think of like a way of, or a time that made you really angry and then displayed on screen. That that relationship between directors and actors can always be interesting, very interesting. Um, what what do you want to do? What, you know, I guess is uh, to say the question because you're a young man, but you know, later in life, what, what what are your dreams, your aspirations? Honestly, it is to oh, it is honestly to be on the big screen as someone that can be as reliable as possible. I have, I honestly want to be a great cinematographer where I am just in it and I know that I can can be a part of any team and be as versatile as I can. That, because mainly to me, success isn't something with money, it's mainly about how I want to be in, or how I want to feel in my future self. And I'm honestly getting there right now. Yeah. Who like? Do you have are there certain directors or cinematographers you look up to the most right now? 
right now i do not <laughs> look at uh but there is a youtuber that really really stands out to me and it was peter mckinnon he was one of the youtubers that really taught cinematography and in a way that i could actually understand and it just made me go into filmmaking even more isn't that interesting that you know like when i was growing up a long time ago um you know it i the only people i could look up to were, were people in the business but now you have you have youtubers you have tiktokers you have a lot of folks not just in the big business you know, in, in the main industry but a lot of folks to look up to do you find that more of the people that you find interesting are the ones on social media yes mainly because you can it, well to me yes because this is these are people that can actually respond to you or if there's something that you need help with you can basically look at what they've done in the past and it's like really accessible to you so it's honestly easier for people to fall in fall in love with what they're doing especially when you can see more of their work that's being displayed mm. well henry i congratulate you uh wish you the best and maybe someday you're the next Spielberg, the next Tarantino. You never know. And I just want you to remember us because I want you backed so we can talk about whatever that next project is. That sounds good. I hope you can keep in touch. All right. Henry Volmar, again, student at Miami-Dade College, directed uh, the film that's coming up in the Miami for Social Change Youth Film Festival. It's called Malcolm's Desk. Again, it's July 21st and 22nd at the Julius Littman Theater in North Miami Beach. We have all the details on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Monday, July 18th. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. We got some production help today from our intern, Ali Bianco. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey-Cohen. Our news director is Taryn Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior news editor. And Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio. The theme music for the program is from the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Don't forget that if you missed any of the show, catch the rebroadcast tonight at 8 or just download the podcast. Look up WLRN Sundial. Well, coming up tomorrow on the show, there's a lifeguard shortage and it's making its way to some of the beaches here in South Florida. Why is that? What, what are different communities doing to solve the problem? And if there aren't that many lifeguards, well, is it even safe to go to the beach anymore? I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Always appreciate it. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.